then again, honestly, what do I know? The, like, <laughs> I, I, that may be my favorite quote of any <laughs> podcast we've done. Uh, it doesn't get any more human than no, that. I mean, Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Human Element. This is Kara's podcast focused on injecting humanity into modern marketing. We are so excited to have some folks from Vice here today. I'm joined by Sarah Harrison, who's the SVP of the North American Creative Studio. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Hello. And Peter Fairman, who's lead client partner at Vice. Hello. How you doing? Very good. How are you? I'm so excited to have you guys here. We're excited to be here. Mm -hmm. And we are, as usual, or as sometimes is true, joined by the intrepid yet moderately grumpy Chelsea Contra. (laughs) Hi, everyone. (laughs) Never fails. I say the same thing every time. So let's kind of jump in. I think the first thing I want to ask a little bit about is a bit of background on Vice and then your own roles within kind of the the massive Vice empire to start, if that's all right. And Sarah, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Okay. So a bit of background on Vice. Vice is a youth media company. It it started about 25 years ago. This year is our 25th anniversary, which a lot of people don't know. I did not know that. Yeah, right? And um, it started out as The Voice of Montreal, a print publication in Montreal. It was started by Shane Smith and Sarouche, who is still around. They wanted to cover topics that other people weren't covering. And that's what they did in Voice of Montreal. And that still remains what we do today is cover topics that other people aren't talking about or go deeper into a story than other Uh, media companies do. So we have five business lines. So we have Vice Digital, which covers all of our websites and our social media properties. Vice News, which is we have a four nights a week show on HBO. We do HBO specials. um, And then we also have a very large digital presence. So we do videos and and written stories um, digitally. We have Vice Land, which is our TV channel, which is a a joint venture with A&E. Then we have Vice Studios, which is high-end film and TV, scripted and unscripted. Um, like we produced the Fire Festival documentary that was on Netflix recently. And then we have a Virtue, which is our creative agency. They are a full-service creative content agency, and they're kind of their own business line, and they have you know AOR clients and, and whatnot. My role at Vice, I oversee the North American Creative Studio on the media side of the business. I have three teams under me. I have a strategy team, a creative team, and a design team. I started at Vice about four and a half years ago as a creative director, and then I kind of evolved into where we are today. Got it. Peter? Yeah, so I started at Vice, I think, seven or eight years ago. I came to the brand just as like a huge fan, so I can basically remember which magazine cover was in which apartment's living room or bathroom, as the case may be for many years up until I started with the company. And I originally started as a senior project manager. So this was when we were at about 90 people in our Brooklyn office. Now we have two offices in Brooklyn with a couple thousand between the two. And you kind of just did a little bit of everything. And so that was like a wonderful spirit to like be around because it was this, at that time in 2012, we were just about to launch the HBO show, our first HBO show. So it was kind of like this big mark of, hey, we're here, we're serious, and we're doing some really important stuff. But within the company, it just felt like everybody was just like doing everything they could, no matter it was if it was their job or not, just to keep pushing things forward. Right. And so that was like a super 
you know, almost intoxicating type of atmosphere to be around because uh, I felt like it was, you know, a brand that I was really connected to emotionally and that we were doing really, really important things. So um, flash forward uh, a number of years, I now am sitting on the commercial side of the business in New York and I oversee the relationship with all of the Dentsu agencies mm. east of the Mississippi. <laughs> We don't normally divide our geography internally uh, by the Mississippi, but um, the Mississippi by yeah. the Mississippi. My, my apologies, the, the mighty Mississippi, the yeah. mighty Mississippi. So let's talk audience for a second, mm-hmm. Sarah. You used a phrase which I think is really interesting, which is this youth media company. Mm-hmm. How do you define your audience uh, advice across your multiple lines? We talk a lot about having a youth mindset advice. Mm. One thing that's interesting about Vice, and I think that's actually relevant when you talk about the 25-year history is advice has always spoken to a youth audience. So people in their 20s, we started actually as a Gen X targeted publication 25 years ago. I, I didn't stay there, actually. I, <laughs> I wanted to. Um, but so, so Vice, Vice still appeals to some Gen Xers because it's, mm-hmm. it's about the youth mindset and it's about being connected to kind of what's next and what's happening in culture right now. And so there were a couple of points during the history of Vice where we made conscious decisions to go after the next audience. So for example, in the mid-2000s, when video started becoming really big um, and millennials started to become a large cohort that marketers were going after, Vice pivoted on purpose to video. I can't believe I just used the phrase pivot to video, but I did. We, we um, actually do have a, we have a foghorn <laughs> that we blow in the post-production, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll make sure that we... We marked that. So I started doing a lot of video in the in the mid two thousands, and at, right now we're starting to get really focused on Gen Z because mm. they're the next up and coming audience, the largest audience. There's things that are different about them than about millennials, and so um, so we talk about our audience as a as a youth minded audience, and we talk about the attitude of seeing the world as young, mm. which means that. The world is young is this idea that everything is just beginning. Like things aren't doom and gloom and like everything is bad and we're all going to die. I mean, we are all going to die. But I didn't know if you knew something we didn't. (laughs) The world is full of possibility. Things are just beginning. Like every day is is a time to make a difference. And our audience really sees themselves as activists and people who can make a difference in the world. This idea of the world being young and it's like up to us to make it what we want is sort of the mindset that our audience has these days. So there is a natural mission slash activism purpose in that, right? Yeah, I guess a thing to know also is that our audience also still really likes to have fun and they want to have fun. So there's this combination of feeling like there's a purpose and wanting to make a change in the world, but also like young people want to have fun. They want to like go to parties. They want to see their friends. They want to have experiences. They want to just kind of, they, there's a lightness to that. So it's mm. kind of an interesting purpose, but also a lightness that it's, it's both are in, in the Vice DNA. I think that's a, a really interesting sort of space to be. Do you guys spend a lot of time thinking about brand and thinking about you know how your audience connects to the brand and, and what that looks like? And then if so, and I'm assuming you spend a fair amount of time on it, how does that then connect into your part of the business? We do, and we have had a renewed focus on brand over the past year, I would say. But I think for a long time, the brand was sort of obvious to people. Like, the company was small enough that everybody knew each other and you didn't need mm. to have a defined set of values because everybody sort of knew what those were. And it was the same thing with the audience. Like the audience 
it wasn't a very mainstream audience. Like it was a pretty niche audience. As we get larger and larger, we become a bit more mainstream, but the DNA of the brand is still there. And so there has been an exercise over the past year internally at the company to really define the brand and to talk about who we are. Like Mm -hmm. we have something called the Vice Code now, which is an internal set of codes that's like, this is how we think about the work that we create. And then we also have um, a set of values. And none of them are surprising, but it's really important to have that definition so that kind of unites everyone. So... You have lots of different sub-brands. Yes. And so a lot of times what happens in organizations with lots of sub-brands is they get a little lost on connectivity mm-hmm. back to the parent brand or yes. they lose track of what the parent brand is versus what the sub-brands yes. are. Yes. So my leading question is getting to that. Well, as you may have read within the past week, we're actually tackling that head-on because mm. that is something that happened. Like for a long time, we had the Vice Master brand, and then if our audience showed a lot of interest in a specific category, we would create another vertical dedicated yes. to that audience. And so we did that, and we ended up with like 12 or 15 different verticals. And that was a problem on a number of levels because, I mean, from an audience perspective, you come to the site and you you don't know what the full breadth of content that Vice makes is. For our brand partners, it was a problem because it was confusing. Like if you think about, we have a very large gaming audience. We have like something like 20 million, mid-20 millions of, yep. of, of gamers, uh, people who consider themselves fans of gaming in the audience. But then we also had a channel called Waypoint. And Waypoints had like, I'm going to misquote this, but it was only a couple million you know, uniques every month. So that was really confusing for mm-hmm. internally and our partners because we would say our gaming audience is 25 million and then you look at Waypoint and Waypoint is really small. So... What we've done, this has been a very long exercise, but within the past week, we're releasing the new kind of brand infrastructure and it places Vice at the center of it. We're bringing some of those smaller verticals back into the fold. So we're never, we're always going to cover the same topics. We're always going to cover gaming. We're always going to cover health. We're always going to cover all of the topics that young people care about. But those don't necessarily need a brand just because young people care about it. Like the Vice brand is culture. It can hold a lot. And all that stuff fits in the Vice brand, but the brand wasn't able to have some of that stuff before because they were in, oh, that belongs to this sub-brand. Might have been parsed out. Yeah. Yeah. And then in addition to that, we released a new um, UX on our site that just makes everything much easier to find. Hmm. So that actually went up yesterday um, for the first time. It just shows who we are as a company in so much of a better way than than what our site looked like before. So for advertisers' role in the industry... What is the role of brands in hard news? Is there a role for brands in hard news? For instance, MSNBC and Cadillac created Uh a piece. So Cadillac got involved in a conversation that was much larger around the hard topics, um, politics, and Mm -hmm. more in the news and the sector. Mm -hmm. Now, that was probably one of the first real examples of that. Have you seen any brands trying to get into vice channels that are more based on timely topics, that are a bit more politically charged or more timely charged? Well, we have Vice News. We have a news division. We have done some large brand partnerships. Like, for example, about four years ago, we did a partnership with Bank of America. It was was on Vice News, and the show was called The Business of Life. And that was about, Bank of America had a platform called Better Money Habits that was all about teaching young people better money habits. But people weren't reading that, the site. So what we did was we created this show. It was a show that we had wanted to create, and it happened that Bank of America came and wanted something similar. So each of the episodes was a, um, a different topic, Timely and relevant and definitely in the news space, Bank of America sponsored it. So it was clear that they were interested in these topics and kind of supporting young people learning about these topics. And then we were able to send really qualified visitors to their website. And so it had, I I don't remember the metric exactly, but it was like 
an incredible increase of time on site at Better Money Habits from people who came from watching The Business of Life. Mm. And then they consumed more content as well. We have had examples of that, of brands coming on to work work with news. I do think that there's a space for brands in, in news because anytime that you're in a place where somebody is really emotionally open or somebody is is like really cares about something, they're going to be emotionally open to whatever message is there as well. So if an advertising message is there and somebody is t- reading about a topic that they really care about, you're, the message is going to make an impact as well. So there's no reason that brands shouldn't play in that new space. Peter, you know, you work with a bunch of partners here across Dan and clients as well. What's sort of the best stuff or the best examples of some work that you've seen come out of that over the past, you know, year or two? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing that comes to my mind is is the work that we did with Cadillac around a show that we created together called Hustle. The show follows John Henry, who's an entrepreneur who started a incubator in Harlem for predominantly minority-owned businesses. And so we came to them early on in the process. And this is really how we work best is like getting with a client before we have, you know, the donuts made and and like figuring out what it is we're going to do together. And we lend our ex- expertise in creating content they, you know, work with us to make sure that we're talking about whatever the product is in the correct light. And that, you know, there's always going to be like a push and pull. And I think that anyone who thinks that you can do something like this and there's not going to be is probably kidding themselves. The key there is just making sure that you're super tight with your partners when you're working through that process and that you're able to have really honest and open, frank conversations. And I think that where we netted out with that was not only like an amazing show that was broadcast on linear, but then we create all these other assets that are pushed out through digital and through social. And then specifically in the social space, because John Henry is such a incredible person and he's got some connections, you know, we're getting like Alicia Keys who's talking about it. And then that, of course, you know, spreads out even further. And so to me, that's, that, that is our best way of working together. It's creating IP together, and then finding different formats that fit all of our different touch points. So like whether it's linear, digital, or or social. You do mention, so the other channels, right? Are there specific channels that you're starting to lean towards or starting to work more on and focus on based off of the audience, the youth audience that you're focused on? We meet our audience where they are, just like most modern media companies. So where, wherever our audience is, we are on that platform. We have a very, very strong audience on Snap. Our Snap audience is very young, right? They're pretty much all Gen Z and... No, let me be clear. They're absolutely (laughs) all Gen Z. And a lot of them don't know Vice outside of Snap. Like they are like, oh, Vice, that, that Snap thing. When you look at our different platforms, the audience is on them. So for example, Apple News, that's a, that's a platform that we're on. That audience is much older the people who watch our show on HBO, they think of Vice as like a hard-hitting documentary news brand. Yes. And then they don't realize that we have all this other, like so much other stuff. So it's really, um, we are in a lot of different places and we have different audiences in all those different places. It's kind of strange how that strategy was like originally sort of born out of this idea that 
when we were just a magazine, like, let's take this magazine, let's make it free, and let's go put it where culture is happening. Right, so put it in put music it in, record stores. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, boutiques or, you know, barbershops or where, wherever the case may be. Like, where do we want to meet our consumers? And it's exactly, we're doing the exact same thing today, just in a different, at a larger scale, I guess you could say. Have you seen any brands that are hesitant to be in and around or involved in what I'll call edgier or grittier content. And that's not, that's not just limited to those that have a distinct political angle, right? Mm-hmm. That's one version of it. But I mean, you know, you guys have some stuff that is earthy. What so, are you talking about? Our brand <laughs> is like the safest brand. I mean, yeah. come on. Um, I've never heard that before. Yeah, I know. What, what, <laughs> yes, is your, is yes. what, is your, what is your kind of story? You know, if you're talking to, I'll pick a non-client. If you're talking to American Express. What I say to our to our prospective clients is that no one is more familiar with having edgy content and having to work with advertisers than Vice Media is. We've been concerned about brand safety for longer than it's been like the hot topic of, of, of the industry, for sure. And that just comes with the territory of creating this type of content, you know, like we don't make edgy content for the sake of making edgy content. We make it because that's what our audience cares about. And so for us to shy away from that sort of thing would sort of be disingenuous to our mission. But at the same time, we we are totally understand that there's certain advertisers, many advertisers, all advertisers, you could say, <laughs> that have their guardrails that they want to stay between. Yep. You know, what we did in, in, in that sense was make sure that we partnered with a best-in-class solution, which was a company called Grapeshot, which has been acquired by Oracle's now goes now goes by the name Oracle Data Cloud. The technology behind it is not about finding keywords and keeping that content free of advertisers. It's about actually ingesting the content of what whatever it is. So if it's a written article, it reads the page. If it's a video, it scans all the audio. And it's not just about finding bad words, but sometimes a collection of good words can mean something bad. Or, in, as the case may be, you know, something may happen in the news, you know. So I, I think an example that is kind of illustrative is the Ariana Grande concert. Mm-hmm. when there was Manchester. That, yeah, yeah, where there's that horrible incident there. You know, normally her name is not a hot-button topic for brand, brand safety. Normally that's, for the most part, pretty safe. In real time, our partners at Oracle are feeding that into their AI that's scanning our pages and shutting that off. It's not a one-size-fits-all model for everybody. We can work with partners and make sure that, you know, if they want to be around some edgier stuff, if, if no one's playing in that space, like if everyone's too scared to, I, I, I encourage people to think about, you know, how they can stay true to their brand, but also kind of push the envelope a little bit. I mean, that sort of POV on this type of thing is what we bring, you know, it's a value we bring to our partners. So... I will add to that. We um, so we had an, our new front was last week. Yep. Brand safety was one of the major topics at our new front. At every new front. At every new front. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a major industry topic right now because we do have a lot of content that is considered not safe on our sites. We have been really invested in sort of understanding brand safety, what it means for brands, what it means for us, what's mm. considered safe, what's considered not. So we did a study last summer around brand safety and. Specifically, one of the things that we studied was we looked at all the keywords, the keyword blacklist that we were getting from advertisers. And what we uncovered was that a lot of keywords that are blacklisted are um, 
words that are fairly innocuous or words that describe things about people's identity that have the potential to be in a brand unsafe context, but by themselves are not brand unsafe. Mm -hmm. So words like lesbian or gay or words like Christian or Jewish or Muslim, words like hijab, words like interracial. Um, So pregnant was on there. Feminist was on there. This is problematic for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that, I mean, just as an example, we had a guy on our team who was black and gay, and every day he was having to go in and block ads from appearing next to content about LGBTQ issues or issues around race. And it's like, that's that's just wrong. And in addition, if you take that to its logical extreme, it means that media companies can't monetize content around basically the most important issues of today. And the other thing that is kind of mind-boggling is that these are issues that our audience cares about the most. Like, people really care about LGBTQ issues on our sites. People really care about climate change. People care about what's happening around religion. People really care about these things. And so they, they're they in a actually pretty good mindset to be receiving a brand message. The word Jewish might be appearing next to something that's you know, really negative coverage about something. It might be appearing next to something about really positive coverage about being Jewish. I mean, so we decided to take a stand on this issue. And so at our new front, we we said that there's 25 keywords that we're no longer going to accept as part of a blacklist. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And those include some of these words? Those include some of those words. I I don't have... pregnant still on the blacklist? No, pregnant, feminist, those are words that we said we won't blacklist. We won't blacklist Christian... Muslim, Jewish, hijab. We won't blacklist queer, lesbian, gay, LGBTQ, Latino, mm. Latina, climate change, global warming. So it's it's words that are like pretty basic words. But when you put them in the context of a brand safety blacklist, you're suddenly saying this is a negative word. Yeah. And that's that's a, essentially a form of bias. And it's something that nobody in the industry is talking about. And everybody is just letting this happen because of who we are as a brand and because of what our audience cares about. And we just, we wanted to bring that up. A, that's really interesting. B, what it does is, you know, if you are blocking those kinds of topics and those kinds of areas, it fills those spaces with a disproportionate amount of bad stuff anyway, right? Because you're removing the good stuff from it. Good in quotes. Anything else that you sort of took away from the new fronts? Any other sort of big. Topics. It's so recent. Anything? Yes. Kind of, yes. Oh, Sarah, I'm so excited. There's <laughs> a yes. News. It's not breaking news. Not, see, um. all, we exist to break news on our on this massive news platform we have. We did break something a couple weeks ago. I from, think I listened to that one. Yeah, from I Lindsay. remember you talking about. Oh my gosh, this is breaking news. And I news. prattled on. Yeah, do you like that? Yeah. So this is. I, I will tell you a piece of non-breaking news, which is around measurement and audience measurement. Another mm. announcement that we made at the New Front. So um, for a really long time. There's been these measurement systems that measure how large your audience is. Comscore, obviously, is is the kind of behemoth. And those measurement systems were built for a time when there was one place where people consumed content mainly, which was TV. And it was really easy to manage and to measure. As platforms have proliferated and media companies have started to go onto those platforms, these, these systems just haven't kept up. So we were in this place of like, Okay, Comscore and the and Nielsen and the other systems aren't measuring our audience in the right way. They're not measuring our full audience. Should we try and prop that up in some other way? Should we be worrying about this? Um, and eventually we realized we should just do our own measurement and tell people how many 
people we have. Yep. Um, because that makes the most sense. It was a very, I mean, but it's a little bit scary to say that, you know, we're not going to be relying on Comscore. We're, we're, our Comscore number might drop because we removed the traffic assignment letters that we had. And But we don't, that, that's fine because it doesn't actually accurately measure the size of our audience, which is now big. We have 300 million people worldwide and 110 million in the U.S. And that's on all of our platforms and our O&O. But you wouldn't know that by, look, you know, by right. from standard measurement. So that was a big announcement that we made. And it was a very, very long effort. And on the, um, we have a team called the Global Audience Measurement Team internally that has gone through a lot of rigor. And, have you considered um, maybe a branding committee for these teams? <laughs> um, I feel like I feel like that's got a little. It's a little bit clunky. It doesn't slip off the tongue. No, it's a little. It's actually a little Stalin-esque. Actually, if you think about oh, it, it's global sort of, audience <laughs> measurement. Yeah, yeah, it's a little. I don't yeah. know. I'm not sure about that one. That's really interesting. You know, if if we're ranking new front topics, measurement one, mm-hmm. brand safety one yeah. a, whatever, flip them. We are still an industry in search of some kind of cross-channel. Identity-based, even moderately accurate, right. useful, you know, benchmark by which we evaluate things across, you know, themselves. You guys making a decision to sort of say, all right, we're going to take some of this "quote unquote" into our own hands a little bit to get to at least what we feel is a bit more authentic mm-hmm. representation of us. I think makes a lot of sense. Again, that doesn't necessarily get us to this cross thing, but at least no. it's sort of saying, hey, we, we're we're going to look at our own assets and say, this, this is our view to the absolute best of our uh, ability to, yep. to authentically share. Mm-hmm. Peter, anything else on New Fronts from your perspective? Any surprises in the conversations you heard? I wouldn't say I was necessarily surprised. I the moment that stuck out to me the most, and we were talking about it on the ride over here, was just the immense amount of pride I took in seeing Sarah and Cavell, our, our SVP of North America, get up there and, and deliver this news about the keyword blacklists. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, in this industry, especially from our perspective, you're really trying to do everything you can to work with your clients' needs, you know, give them what they want as, as much as humanly possible while making sure that you're keeping whatever project you're working on going towards the goal of, of delivering whatever the performance metric is you're trying to deliver. And I think that for us to take a stand in front of a room full of the top advertisers in, in the world was just like a was like a moment that kind of woke me up and, and, and I emailed Sarah Ann Cavell as soon as they got off stage. It was just like, you guys just made me... So proud to be here. Well, you can tell your brand development committee or whatever it is that you have called the branding team that they can use that clip. They have our permission anytime because that's right. pretty good. That's pretty good. Yes, yes it is. How do you personally stay inspired, I guess, to do your day jobs? And mm. how do you stay up to date with the trends? I really, really love the Vice brand. And I, I just, I believe so much in what we do as a company. Like, I think that... Creating empathy, inspiring curiosity, creating connections between people, showing things, people things that they didn't know before or showing them a new way of thinking about something that they did know about. I love that. I, th- I think it's so incredibly important. And I think that Vice does it so well. And also for an audience that isn't always receptive to kind of learning new things. And I, I just really believe in the brand and I really believe in the work we're doing. And that's what keeps me inspired. Like I, I really, I work in the commercial side of the business. And so we do that on behalf of brand partners. And then we also help prop up the business so that 
our content creators can do that kind of work. And I just, I just, I really love it. I'm, I authentically love our brand. Anytime I look up from my computer at our office, someone is shooting something, someone is doing something goofy or, you know, Gloria Steinem is walking through, you know, like it's just, you, you just open your eyes, you know, and it's like, easy when you work in that environment for a long time to kind of have these things become sort of normal and routine. But I, I just try to remind myself like every morning when I walk in that like, this is unbelievable that like, I'm so lucky that I get to mm. work for the company that I, you know, was, like I said before, like I was just, I idolized them as, as, a, as a young man growing up and their ability to tell these stories that no one else was telling him and telling him from a perspective that no one else was getting and, and, and speaking to me in a voice that felt like a friend was talking to me and like keeping my eyes open and looking around. And, and, and it's not just the people who are creating the content, like on the commercial side, like everyone is like this kind of like a beautiful weirdo in their own way. And like everyone brings something to the conversation. And because it's such an open dialogue externally with our content, I think that makes people feel really comfortable to share who they are within the office. And that to me is, Pretty inspiring. You can give this clip to HR and recruiting. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody else followed suit on the unblocking of some of those words since you made the announcement? Um, you mean any other media companies? Yes. I haven't read about any or okay. heard about any. It's it's possible. We have had a lot of interest from brands and from clients, both from clients and agency partners hmm. who think that it's really interesting and are sort of like, huh, nobody is talking about this. Let's talk about it together. It's interesting because it's something that brands do to protect themselves, but they're interested in this kind of pushback against that, which I was very excited to see. Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I think there'll be more of that. I think the interest will be significant. Um, having been on the client side many times in my career and worked for large organizations that shall remain nameless, there's also a lot of institutionalized stuff, mm-hmm. infrastructure, legal compliance, this, that, the next thing, which is not, none of those functions, A, are usually oriented with a bent toward marketing to begin with. They certainly aren't oriented to the digital areas of marketing. Definitely, 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 definitely aren't oriented to the network effects, social elements of the digital parts of those marketing spaces. There'll be a long tail of other people that need to be dragged along for what it's worth. I think it's I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's a really interesting thing. Thank you. And I think it's differentiating, right? Mm -hmm. There are media organizations that, frankly, they will not be able to do that. Right. They just can't. You know, your recognition that it's, frankly, part of your brand to do so. Yeah. And what Pete said, too, is that we still work with brands on brand safety. Like these 25 words, we did to make a point. We may expand that at some point, but right now it's what we have. We do have really, really good brand safety systems, like internally, where we sit down with clients, we understand what they want. We don't, it's not, it's a, there's a human element to yep. it as well. So it's, we will work with brands on brand safety, but it's, it, I do think that the industry does need to have a recognition that we've taken this maybe a little too far. There are unintended consequences yes. Yes. Um, that we need to just correct. And I think it will take a long time. I don't think it's going to be something that will just happen in the next six no. months. It will take years. Yeah. But I think that to start that conversation is is like a thing that Vice can do as a brand. And I'm, I'm really proud of us for having done that. That's very cool. So I want to change gears just for a second. I would be remiss if I let a new media, 25 years old new media, but <laughs> a newish media company come in and not raise the current state commercially of new media. Hmm. 
we have lost plenty of brands in the space, whether it's the uh, Mike.coms, whether it's, you know, material cuts and other parts of the business, where you guys sort of, you know, I'm not asking proprietary questions, but I mean, where are you guys in terms of the reality of the commercially difficult aspects of part of being in media and the new media side of the business? Well, one of the interesting things about Vice is that it's so diversified. We're not reliant on only on advertising and we're not reliant on Facebook only for our traffic. Like we have the, you know, I talked about the five lines of business. We have five lines of business and a lot of them are growing. And so that's, um, there's a large opportunity for us in other areas that aren't just audience-based media sales. That's still a really large and important part of our business, but we diversified early. That was part of kind of Shane's genius was to understand that the brand could have legs in other parts of just other areas. And so we are in a pretty good position. We also have done a... Um, a debt raise, which you may have read about. We have a new investment, which speaks to, I think, the belief that people have in Vice, um, that we are able to raise money in this in this atmosphere where a lot of media companies are going under yep. being bought. And that is going to put us on this path of profitability, which is part of our, our CEO, Nancy Dubuque's strategy that's really been paying off over the past year. And now we have this, this raise of funds that is going to get us there. So we're actually relative to the media landscape and as to other new media companies in a in a very strong position. Fill in the blank. 2019 in our business will be the year of consolidation. Hmm. I mean, I think it's like a cliche thing to say, but I think it's true. It's what we were just talking about. You know, I yep. mean, a lot of media companies are going under, the telecoms or other large media companies are buying smaller ones. So it's kind of the year of like seeing who has what it takes to survive. Who's gonna make it? In the current form. I mean, Vice is going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) We answered that question. Who else? The larger legacy brands, I think, um, although some of them aren't necessarily, like some of them are still undergoing the whole quote-unquote digital transformation, I do think that a lot of them have really strong brands. And if they're able to really adapt, which a lot of them are, I think that um, I mean, the Times is an example of someone like a company that's done an incredible job. Incredible job. Um, I really admire what they've done. Agreed, Peter. From your perspective, 2019 will be the year of. I, I was going to say sink or swim, which is a lot which, like which is a lot like consolidation. Um, but that's just what it seems like out there. I mean, I think there are smaller publishers that have found a way to not to survive, but thrive. I think like attention comes to mind. From my understanding, they operate at kind of like a lower overhead, super fine-tuned for social engagement strategy that like, you know, when it comes to KPIs for brands, like it seems like they're really able to to deliver on that stuff. The Times, for example, or even like Condé Nast, like you Sometimes you read things that seem like the wheels are falling off, but I just don't see how those brands go away. There's just too much weight behind them. There's too much power and too much history. I I feel like they they will go on, they will live on in some form or another. So I think it's kind of like a combination between whether you've got the the heft or the agility. Anything in between is... Middle's a tough space. Yeah. Yeah. Last one, and then we'll jump into the lightning round. In your opinion... What's the one thing that people should be talking about in our industry, but they're not? This is kind of unique from from my perspective, but I really think that publishers like ourselves 
are doing a disservice to our clients if we're not offering our unique point of view to whatever it is we're doing, whether it's like running media or creating content. You know, almost going back to the Cadillac example, like collaboration when it really works is that's the best of the best. Because otherwise somebody's sort of muting some part of themselves and you're just not getting the best result. That's the 125-year-old agency question, Mm -hmm. right? How much pushback in what way to what end is required for agencies to maintain their POV on the world and still deliver things that that, that are effective for clients. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that paradigm has changed a lot in this country because of the situation we find ourselves in from a values and institutional mm. continuity perspective. Agency partners that are and publishers, this is not a that are more willing to push and push very hard on purpose and meaning and mission and shared values. And frankly, in some cases, humanity, those are the kinds of partners that brands need. And Mm -hmm. I think brands in their heart know that they need. Branding business is a lot harder than it used to be, right? It's, It's a lot harder to be driving connection to a brand in a culture and a country where there's not as much shared communication and shared value that's a much more challenging job. Right? And there's can't... also so many more people who can have a say about your brand and make it very public. It's not yep. like you control what your brand is, representation of your brand. It's like the audience can control your brand in certain ways and certain times. Exactly. So I think that's a, I think that's a, a huge thing that's going to become a bigger part of our mutual sort of overlapping Venn diagram of the, of the business. Um, and we, you know, we ignore that at our peril. It, for a lot of different reasons, yeah. right? There's there's societal peril. There's value that we deliver to to our partners and, and our clients. I think that's a, a big space moving forward. The lightning round, favorite digital experience, not your own. I'm gonna say Instagram. I think that they've done a really really good job keeping the DNA of the brand while expanding it to make it something they can that they can make money off. Like I remember when Facebook bought Instagram. And then Instagram said, oh, we're going to have ads. Everybody got really scared. I love Instagram ads. I like podcast ads, but I like Instagram ads the most. I look forward to them because they help me discover new brands. They help me discover products that I would like. And I can't say that about ads that I see anywhere else, that I look forward to them. Mm. Um, What do you think about the zero likes or showing no likes on Instagram right now? As a proposal. It's happening to some of the... They're testing it out? Yeah, they're testing it already. I think it depends what the context is. I think that not showing likes for like 13-year-olds is amazing because I think that it's very much messed up social dynamics amongst young kids. That'll be fine. Um, (laughs) um, I think... I mean, what's um, the problem? Just, you know, somebody at their most formative, uh, (laughs) you know, sort of vulnerable time, you know, reinforcing the complete superficiality of life? Right, What could possibly be Um, the long-term issue? But I also think that it might make the platform less engaging, less effective because I think there's so much like when you talk about people who have a lot of um, followers on Instagram and they post something, there's a lot of gratification that they get from Mm -hmm. posting those things. And um, you'll have a little less incentive to post if you're not getting those likes. I think that's a reason that a lot of people post. A tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear. Does it make a sound? I think that's, I think that's, look, I'm all in favor of this. Don't get me wrong. I got a 15 year old daughter and I watch her get up in the morning and like roll down a bunch of hearts. Yeah. And I'm like, why do we have to do this? But I agree with you that like, what is the viewer to, to do? Right. There is a responsibility to young people 
to like to make sure that like these platforms are safe for their mental health. I think that there's, I am a avid user of Instagram. I love it. I don't have any children, but if I did what I want them to be measuring their self-worth on likes, might be a little bit uncomfortable with that, you know? And that's just how, it's how I operated as a teenager was just like whether or not I was getting thumbs up from the people around me. So for us grown ass adults, you know, run wild. But for some younger people in society, I just think we need to make sure that we're... Don't be fooled. We still care about our likes. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I live and die by them. Well, maybe yeah. not you, Robert, but... Best piece of content recently consumed? Um, Any kind. Pod, written word, movie, whatever. I'm just going to go with the most recent piece of content I consumed, which was earlier today. I read a piece on Vice about skincare routines and how there's a new trend of simplifying people's skincare routine. I read that. You morning. did? I read that. Which is so, well, well, the you had her at, and I quote, skincare, skincare routine. routine. Thing, but here's the thing, the thing that's so funny. And, and simplicity. The, <laughs> simplicity. The, the thing I liked about it so much was that I directly benefited from our from Vice's new UX because I would never have, like I go to Vi- all the different Vice channels, but this was something that would have originally appeared on Tonic, our health channel, mm. but it was on the front page of Vice and I probably wouldn't have seen it so I appreciated that. So it's not Got necessarily it. like the best piece of content, but the best experience of taking a piece of content. Best piece of career advice you have either given or received? Oh, can I tell a story? It's not, it's not exactly It's the lightning round. That's what it's for. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Here's my story. When I was in my 20s, I didn't have like a career goal, but in the back of my head, I was like, maybe someday I'll be a creative director. Like that's the coolest Mm. job. That's the height of the profession that I'm in. I'm in a creative profession. I'll be a creative director someday. There's obviously many things that you can do beyond creative director, but I just didn't have that conception that I could go beyond that. So then I met my mother-in-law, my current mother-in-law. She was not my mother-in-law back then. And she is an incredibly successful, inspirational woman. She was a Bill Clinton's congressional lawyer when he was in the White House or one of them. She went on to become deputy general counsel and general counsel of some of the world's largest banks. And so she's just like an incredible person. At some point after knowing her for many years, I realized that my conception of myself had shifted. And, and it wasn't something that I was conscious of at all. But like at some point I realized I'm no longer considering creative director as like the height of career success. I was like, oh, I could be a CEO someday. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not that I want to do that. That's not like a career goal that I have, but that was something that opened up in my head as a possibility. And it just made me realize just how important representation is. Like I hadn't had women in my life before that who I had been able to see myself in and she's very different from me. So I just, I think that it's so important as a young person to seek out people who could be your model even if they're not as a mentor to you or close to you, just to have that in your life, because it really—if you can't see it, you you can't be it. You can't go there. So it's not exactly advice, but that's my story. Thank you. I love that competitor you most admire. Um, I'm going to go with the Times again. I really, I think that they've done a really good job when they came out with. When T-Brand Studio was released, they came out with a new way of telling stories about brands that made it really interesting. Like Vice doesn't tell stories about brands. We tell stories about culture and we fit brands in. We help Mm. brands find their place in culture. It's hard to tell stories about brands and make it interesting because the brand always thinks, oh, it's my story. Everyone wants to hear about it. But in reality, most people don't want to hear a story about a brand. They want to hear a story about something that relates to themselves. But the the Times found a way to tell these stories about brands in really engaging ways. They also do other stuff. It's not the only thing they do. Even at kind of this institution that is... uh, 
one of the kind of most respected journalism institutions where the walls between church and state are probably extremely strong. They've still managed to do really interesting things with their editorial properties, things that I admire and, you know, would hope that I could be part of a project like that someday. And so I just, I really admire what they're doing. They have found a flexibility and an adaptability yet have remained true to to that separation. Very much, yeah. Um, And that can't be easy. No, I can only imagine at a place where I just can't even imagine how much pushback there is internally against that kind of thing but they're doing it and it's, yeah. it's really impressive yeah I cannot thank you enough you've been absolutely fantastic and thank so you gracious so much. with your time thanks for having me guys that is it for us thanks so much for listening to the human element uh, you can find us everywhere you get your pods don't forget to subscribe or perish the thought give us a like and we will be back out to you real soon see ya